Awesome. Tonight we're beginning a wonderful little jewel of a story that we find in the Old Testament recorded in the book of Esther. It's an awesome story. Please turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. It's kind of a tricky book to find in the Old Testament. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find it on page 567. Really would love for all of you to read this right along with us tonight. Esther chapter 1. Lord, as we begin this beautiful story, I pray that you'd speak to each one of our hearts. Lord, it's so encouraging to see how you move in people's lives, in real stories in history. You're familiar with our ways. You have plans for each one of our lives. Help us to understand your word by the power of your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Jewish people are the chosen people of God. You know that, right? The nation of Israel is the chosen nation of God. Now, they didn't do anything to deserve that. It's by God's grace. God chose to accomplish his purposes in history through the Jewish people. There is chosen people. And so we get the Holy Scriptures from the Jewish people. Did you know that? Both Old Testament and New Testament. The true prophets sent from God came through Israel. And most importantly, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, was born out of the Jewish family. They're the chosen people of God. Now, that is why they have been the most targeted people on planet Earth in all of history. Satan hates God, and Satan hates God's people. Satan hates Israel. And throughout history, under satanic influence, many world powers have moved to try to exterminate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. Throughout history, from Pharaoh, back in Exodus chapters, first opening chapters of Exodus, to Adolf Hitler of Nazi Germany. The Jews have been targeted. But the Jews have always been delivered. God has always moved To save them. In fact, they're still around today, right? In fact, this Sunday is a very special day. What happens this Sunday, May 14th? Well, it's Mother's Day, of course. (laughs) I hope you have everything ready for mom. But this Sunday is also the 75th anniversary of the independence of the state of Israel. After 2,000 years in exile... 75 years ago, Israel was reborn again in their nation, in their land. So God still has plans for Israel, as you know. Well, 2,500 years ago, the Jewish people faced 
total extermination under the Medo-Persian Empire. Literally, a decree went out commanding that every Jew in their kingdom be killed. Men, women, boys, girls, infants, everyone. God moved to save his people. And he used a young, single, beautiful, orphaned Jewish woman to do it by the name of Esther. And this is her story. So let's begin. Look at verse 1. Esther chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus. This was the Ahasuerus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel. So in those days... The Medo-Persian Empire is in control of the world. And this was the largest empire that the world had ever seen up to that point in history. That whole section, all of the colored sections, the Persian Empire. 127 provinces spanning from India to Ethiopia. The Persians were in charge. The city of Shushan, you can't see it right there, but I've got it circled. It's also called Susa. That was an important city in this kingdom, this empire. That's where the citadel well was. And it's where all the action in this story takes place. For reference sake, I've circled another city over here. That would be Jerusalem. That's where Jerusalem is. Speaking of Jerusalem, where are all the Jews at this point? They are scattered all over. They've been dispersed all over the land. Their kingdom had been conquered by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Many Jews were killed. Many Jews were deported. The Medo-Persian Empire defeated Babylon. They took over. So the Jews are still scattered. Now at this point, 60,000 Jews have been allowed to return to Jerusalem to begin building the temple. But by far, millions of Jews are outside the land, including a Jewish presence in Shushan, Susa. The king in charge of this empire, Ahasuerus, He reigned over all of Persia for 21 years, from 485 to 465 B.C. When he comes to the throne, most of the land has already been conquered. He enjoys this massive kingdom that's been assembled. But when the story of Esther begins, he has his eyes on Greece. That has not been conquered yet, and he wants to do something in his reign. So his military is preparing to invade Greece. And he's trying to get everyone in all the various provinces together to be a part 
of that invasion. That's why we read in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he made a feast for all of his officials and servants. The powers of Persia and Media, the nobles, the princes of the provinces being before him. When he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days. So the king puts on this massive royal feast, this banquet, there in Susa. And it's lasting 180 days. Now, that doesn't mean this was one continual feast for 180 days. The king has invited officials and dignitaries from all over the empire, all the different 127 provinces. He's asking them all to come, and so you have people coming people going, and as each group arrives, the king wines and dines them. Takes them around the palace. Look at all the stuff that I have. Look at all the treasure. Look how rich. So 180 days of that. Then look at verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So the 180 days are complete. This time he puts on a grand finale party, and this party does last seven days. Everyone in Susa is invited from the highest to the lowest. There are still officials from out of town that are deal, and this is a big deal. Verse six says, "There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars, and the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, white and black marble." And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other. With royal wine in abundance, according to the generosity of the king. In accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. In other words, there's no limit. For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's Pleasure. So this last grand finale, it's a party. It's a party. Seven days. There's a whole lot of drinking going on. Everyone's drinking wine from gold vessels. No, no two gold vessels are alike. All the luxuries of the king are on display. Verse 8 says that the drinking was not compulsory. That means there's no limit. There's no limit. There's no limit to how little or how much you want to drink. In other words, it was an open bar. Drink as much as you want. And the implication here by the language is you're going to see they're drinking a lot. This is becoming a drunken Revelry. Well, 
this king was married. There was a queen. Her name was Vashti. Queen Vashti. Verse 9 says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So you see what's happening. The king's got all the guys over here. They're hooting and hollering. They're partying. They're drinking. And Vashti, the queen, she's having her party over here on the other side of the palace. And they're probably behaving a lot more than the men, right? Now, Vashti was a beautiful woman. She was drop-dead gorgeous. She was beautiful to behold. In fact, her name, Vashti, means beautiful. So you got this feast going on. And then notice what happens, which begins a whole chain of events that defines our story. Look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. In other words, when king was drunk. He commanded Mehuman, Bistia, Harbona, and some other guys that have hard names to pronounce. Seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Fashti before the king wearing her royal crown in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore, the king was furious. And his anger burned within him. So, day seven, they've been partying for a week. This is the last day of the feast, man. They're totally out of control. A bunch of drunk dudes. And according to Jewish tradition, these guys begin talking about women. And beautiful women. And they begin to have a debate. Who's the most beautiful women? Which province in all of Medo-Persia, where are the most beautiful women located? You know, are they California girls or East Coast girls? So they're talking about this, probably using locker room talk. The king who's drunk says, I'll tell you who the most beautiful woman in the world is. She's right here. She's my wife. Queen Vashti. And he says, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you. So he sends his eunuchs to the other party. He says, Vashti, you have been requested to come to this other party with all the guys. And you're going to flaunt your beauty Before all these drunk dudes. 
And, and the language, is, it, it, it implies she's going to flaunt. She's going to be required to flaunt. She's, she's going to wear the royal crown, that's for sure, but not much else. She's going to do a dance. She's going to do a little striptease. That's what the king... Can you imagine a husband making a request of his wife to do that? Well, Vashti, and I love her for it, said, no way, Jose. She didn't say Jose, but she said, no way. She told the king, no way, I'm not doing it. I'm not... I'm not going to be your little trophy wife. I'm not going to be a little piece of meat for you. Put on display. I'm not going. Good for her. Good for her. She made a wise decision. And I would just like to encourage my sisters in Christ tonight. You should say no to the same types of things. Don't ever let yourself be in a position where you're dressing sexy, seductive, trying to make yourself physically attractive for men, especially drunk men. Be like Vashti. Say no to that. Now, I think we could all agree tonight that if you're a Christian woman, you should not be a stripper in a strip club. You should not be posting seductive, sexually suggesting posts on social media or on the Internet. Hopefully, everyone knows that. But what about getting all dolled up dressing all seductively and going to places where the alcohol flows? What about going to the nightclubs and the dance halls and the bars and the extravagant parties, going to the places where you know there's going to be a lot of drinking and you go there and you think you can have some drinks And there you are in the presence of a lot of drunk men. My sisters in Christ, don't put yourself in that type of a position. Don't do it. There's a story that came out um, just this last week. I don't know if you heard it. A young sophomore, beautiful young girl, sophomore at LSU. She went out partying with some friends, good friends. They went to a bar that they've all been to. She got plastered, so drunk that she didn't even really know where she was. She kind of lost her group of friends. She ends up getting in a car with four male strangers. All four sexually abused her in the car. And then threw her out of the car on the street when they were finished with her. She had no idea where she was. She got up disoriented and eventually 
tragically, a car ran her over and she died on the street at 3.30 in the morning that night. Now I'll tell you what, those four monsters did that. They're at fault. There's no excuse for what they did. But my sister in Christ, why put yourself in a position where something like that can happen? Why get dressed up all pretty and go to places where there's going to be a whole lot of drunk men looking at you? By the way, my sisters in Christ, you should always dress modestly. I mean, look nice, of course. As it's been said, if the bard needs painting, paint it. Paint the barn. Look nice. But don't walk around looking sexy. And there's a difference. Let me tell you, there's a lot of perverts out there. It can be very dangerous. So Vashti says, no way. And the king is furious. Verse 12 says the king was furious. And his anger burned within him. And so he needs counsel. The king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew just law and justice, those closest to him being Karshena, a bunch of guys that I can't pronounce, seven princes of Persia and Media who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to the law because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus brought to her by the eunuch. So he assembles his, his, uh, his wise guys. They're probably drunk too. And he says, did you see what Queen Vashti just did? What should be done? Verse 16, and Mem Yukan answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti is not only wrong the king, but also all the princes and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. The queen's behavior will become known to all women, so they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report. King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persia and Media will say to all the king's official that they have heard of the behavior of the queen. Thus, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. King Your queen just humiliated you publicly, defied you publicly, and she is setting it. She's the queen. She's setting an example for everyone. Everyone's everyone's talking. If she can do this and there'll be no consequence, all of the women throughout all of the empire are going to start despising their husbands dishonoring their husbands. This is a big deal, king. What should I do? Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him and let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes 
so that it will not be altered, that Vashti shall come no more between King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who's better than she. When the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. King, you need to divorce her. Get rid of her. Exile her. Banish her from the royal court. You need to replace her. And you need to put it into law. I mean, you need to put your thumb down on this one. That all women will respect their husbands. You know, some people think that these wise guys were having issues at home with their own wives. Very possible. But they say, they, they, take, it, they take it a step further. They said, you need to make a royal decree recorded in the laws of the Medes and the Persians that cannot be altered. You need to make this a formal law on the books. Vashti is banished, she'll be replaced, and all women better not do what Vashti did. They made it a formal law. Now this is a little bit over the top, don't you think? Verse 21, the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. Then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script and to every people in their own language, that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people. They did it. He divorced her, put a law on the books. And by the way, this king would regret it. He would regret it. He would be so sorry that this had happened. So again, I want to give that warning, not just to my sisters in Christ, but to all my brothers and sisters in Christ. Beware of where the alcohol flows. Beware. Don't put yourself in positions like that. Terrible things happen. This king makes a stupid, tries to do something stupid. Queen did the right thing, and then he does something that he regrets. Every time in scripture when you see scenes like this in the Bible, something terrible happens. I think of when Herod had his birthday party in the New Testament. You remember the story? He has this big elaborate party, and he has his daughter-in-law come and do a seductive dance for all the men. And she's so beautiful and pleases all the men that he says to her, oh man, I'll give you a gift, anything, up to a third of my kingdom. You remember this? And so she goes to her mom and she says, he said, give me anything. What do you want? And the mom says, have him cut off the head of John the Baptist. And so she comes to the drunk Herod. Here's my request. We want the head of John the Baptist, and we want it on a silver platter. And Herod had a lot of respect for John the Baptist. He regretted it, but because of what happened in that little drinking party, John the Baptist was beheaded. Noah got into problems when he was drunk. 
Lot got into problems when he was drunk. Now the world tries to make drinking parties look like this. Oh, it's fun, it's exciting. But you will do things you regret. Don't put yourself in positions like that. You know, we do marital counseling. And it's happened a lot where you find out that the wife is going to happy hour with all of her girlfriends. Or the husband's going to happy hour with all of his buddies. They're having nights out on the town. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I don't think it's even safe for married couples, both husband and wife, to go out and do the club thing together. Go about and do all of these things, man. No. Dumb. Terrible things can happen that you regret. My parents, my my dad's retired military, and so they have medical care through the military. And true story, uh, they got a brand new doctor. Uh, This is happening several years ago. They got a brand new doctor, young guy, just out of medical school, single. And they really liked this guy. Well, my mom went in for an appointment, and uh, he wasn't there. And somebody else saw her. And and they asked, she asked, well, what happened to this doctor? And everyone was kind of like, hush, hush. Eh, We're not going to say anything. That night, there was a story on the news. This doctor had been to the baseball game, the isotopes, like the chihuahuas. He'd been drinking with his buddies in the lounge. And he somehow made his way to the field, stripped naked, and streaked across the field. This is a doctor. He lost his job. Lost his reputation. Probably thought, this is wild. That's what people do when they're out and party. Isn't this wild? Oh, you're so crazy. Now you're doing stupid stuff. You're destroying your own life. You say, well, I don't drink. I would still caution, don't spend time in those places where that's happening. So you don't drink, but everyone else around you is drinking. I know of a young man who didn't drink. He was a stellar golfer. He was getting ready to go. I mean, he was going to go to a college. I mean, he was an incredible golfer. Goes to a bar with his buddies. He's not drinking. Everyone else is drinking. A fight breaks out. His buddy gets in trouble, so he has to step in and help out. He gets a part of the fight. A window is broken. Piece of glass severs all of the key nerves in his arm. Goodbye, golf. Goodbye, use of your hand for life. Just don't go there. Be convicted about that in your spirit. Bad things happen there. Okay, now, there are pieces that the author is supplying you as you go through this story because there's this big picture that's being written. 
And there's these really important details that you need. And I just want to show you one real quickly. Verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it will not be altered. This is a very important detail to the the whole story. When you put a royal decree in the official law of the Medes and the Persians, it was there forever. It had to be obeyed. It could not be altered. It could not be appended. It was there for good. That will become important to the story later. Okay, so poor King Ahasuerus no longer has his queenie poop. About three to four years go before we get to chapter two. There's about three to four year time period between chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's single. He remains single. He doesn't get married. And that's because he's very busy during those three or four years because he actually goes through with that invasion of Greece. And he spends most of those years trying to do it. Now, at first, it looks really, really promising. They start to defeat Greece. But somewhere around the middle of the conflict, Greece fights back. They defend themselves. The king fails in his efforts to take Greece. He's frustrated. He's angry. He returns home. He's depressed. So in verse 1 of chapter 2 we read, After these things, when the wrath of King Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti, what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So she, he gets home from this failure. He's not doing well at all emotionally. And he remembers Vashti. And the language implies he missed her. He's thinking about his queen. And it's even possible that he's thinking about trying to find her. And getting her back. But then he remembers. Wait a minute. It was written in the law. She can no longer be. So he's bummed. Now, his counselors notice this. And they want to help uh, the king. So they come up with a plan. Now, hold your seat. Look at the plan that these guys come up with. Verse 2. Then the king's servants who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan, the citadel, into the women's quarters under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custody of the women. And let beauty preparations be given them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. Do you understand what they're organizing here? We need to find you a replacement king. So let's go gather the most beautiful women in the empire to the capital city here. They send folks out into each province. Remember, there were 127 provinces. 
to find the most beautiful women in each province. They probably bought two or three back. All these women are going to come and be uh, held in a place that the custodian named Hegai will have charge of. So we're talking like 300, 400 women or so. All of them there. And then they're going to get beauty preparations. And then they're going to have this little thing where the king gets to select. I mean, it's, it's a beauty pageant. And the winner gets crowned Miss Persian Empire. And she wins the king. Yay, right? I am convinced that if there were TV back then, this would have been a Bachelor episode, the Royal Edition. Absolutely incredible. What does the king think about this? The end of verse 4, this thing pleased the king. Well, of course it did. He's going to choose the most beautiful women out of the 400 most beautiful women in the entire kingdom. He's a go, right? So they do it. They go forth with it. And that's when we meet two Jews that are leaving in Susa. A guy named Mordecai and Esther. Verse 5, in Shushan, the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shmael, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we have this Jew named Mordecai. He's third generation exiled. He happens to live in Susa. He has a female cousin much younger than him. She's an orphan. Her parents died. Mordecai raises her up as his own daughter. And this Esther, as it says in verse 7, was lovely and beautiful. And the language is she is gorgeous. Hadessa is her Hebrew name, which means myrtle. Esta is her Persian name, which means star. She had movie star good looks. So watch what happens. Verse 8. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard, And when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel, under the custody of Helgai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, 
the custodian of the women. So you picture the scene. All of these women are coming from all across the province. When somebody notices the hometown girl, Esther the star, and somebody brings the attention to Haggai, man, have you seen Esther? And Esther becomes all caught up in this thing. And you notice in verse 8 it says, she was taken. She was taken. She didn't volunteer for this. She didn't want this. She's taken. Now you might think that this would be a great honor to be recognized as one of the 400 greatest, most beautiful women But it's not. They were in a very dangerous place. Only one of the 400 women is going to be queen. The 399 who lost, they would be banished as part of the king's harem. They would become a concubine of this king essentially living as a perpetual widow. So the stakes are high. One wife, one becomes queen. Everyone else stays basically as a perpetual widow. Well, you'll notice that right out of the blocks, Esther is a star. It says, now the young woman, verse 9 pleased him, that's Haggai, and she obtained his favor, so he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Haggai is smitten. Esther is the star that's shining brighter than everyone else. So he gives her preferential treatment. She gets the best place in the house. She gets seven maidservants to help her. Okay, now look at verse 10. And I'm going to put this slide up again. Another very important piece to the puzzle. Verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or family. For Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. And every day Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening. So this is going to be a very important detail to the story. Please understand it. She is not to tell anybody that she's Jewish. And she's in this whole situation and nobody knows that she's Jewish. Very important. Okay, so... This beauty pageant begins. How's it going to work? Verse 12. Each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus. After she had completed 12 months preparation, according to the regulations for the women, for thus were the days of their preparations of portions, six months with oil of myrrh, Six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. Ladies, would you like one year in the spa of the royal palace? I mean, this is crazy. 
beauty preparations for the women that are already the most beautiful people in the kingdom. Six months, skin treatment, oil of myrrh. Six months, preparation of perfume. In my mind, I see these women marinating in pools of perfume, right? Twelve months. And no doubt, they were also being taught all the etiquette, all the preparations, how to talk to the queen, how to interview, all those things. So, verse 13, after the 12 months of preparation, thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So after the the year of preparation, each woman gets one night in the palace with the king. And here's how it goes. All the contestants, they're contained over here. Each woman, one by one, goes and spends one night with the king. And after they leave, that morning, they go into this other place with the concubines. And there they wait to see who gets selected by the king. Now, what were they required to do that night in the palace with the king? Whatever the king wanted. Whatever the king wanted. They could all bring various things in to impress the king, maybe different outfits, maybe things to show their talents or musical instruments. There was probably a talent compartment to the beauty palette. Certainly, they would sleep with the king. Sex, possibility with this king, no doubt. And then he would decide who's he going to select. So it's Esther's turn, verse 15. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. Haggai's rooting for her. Tells her what to bring in. Verse 16, so Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign. So Esther got her time with the king. Now here's the million dollar question that everyone asks. Did they sleep together? Very possibly. She may have been compelled to do that. And by the way, the act of sleeping with the king made you the king's property, either a concubine or a wife. So that's very possible. I like to think 
that God protected her, don't you? I like to think that she went in and not only was she beautiful on the outside, she's beautiful in spirit. She has this beautiful character, this electric personality. Very clever. They talked. Perhaps she was able to avoid that. So she has her night. Then she goes and she joins the concubine pit with everyone else. Waiting to see what happens. Waiting to see. And what happens? Well, of course. Verse 17. The king loved Esther. More than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight. More than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head. And made her queen instead of Ashtai. Then the king made a great feast. The feast of Esther. For all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces. And gave gifts according to the generosity of the king. This is one of the greatest rags to riches stories you'll ever find. He chose Esther. Put a crown on her head. Showed grace to her. A poor, single, Jewish young, orphaned woman becomes the queen of the Persian Empire. What a story. Now, by the way, the biggest piece to the story is in place. There is a queen in the Persian Empire And nobody knows that she's Jewish. Big piece. There's something interesting about the book of Esther, and and a lot of you probably know this, but did you know that the name God doesn't show up once? God is never, you don't see God or Lord in all ten chapters. That's odd, you got to, a book in the Bible that's 10 chapters long, and you don't have God in it. But please understand that although God isn't mentioned, he's active. He's working behind the scenes. He's putting all the players in place. He's got Esther where he needs her. He's got Mordecai where... He needs him. All these things are happening. All the pieces are coming together. You know, I mentioned this to you last time when we were uh, studying the book of Ruth. By the way, isn't it interesting? Ruth was a Gentile woman who married a Jew. Esther is a Jewish woman who married a Gentile. The Lord works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? God is always working. And never forget that. He's always working. We sing a song from time to time. Even when I don't see it, he's working. Even when I don't feel it, he's working. God is always working. And you trust him. There are going to be seasons in your life as a Christian where 
you feel very close to the Lord. You're reading the Bible. Everything's good, and, and, and you feel it. But there are going to be other seasons, like, like 10 chapters, where it's dry, where maybe you're reading the Bible, but you don't feel it. You don't see it. My friend, listen, God is always working, whether you see it or feel it or not. And you trust him on that. He's putting all these pieces together. I noticed something as I was studying, and this was one of the most annoying things. Don't you hate how everyone coddled to that guy? I mean, everyone's fussing all over this guy. I mean, you got 400 women marinating in vats of perfume for this guy. Everybody's telling this guy, you know, what he wants to hear. They're all coddling him. And, and he wasn't even a good guy. He was a little drunk playboy who happened to become king. But everyone's giving homage to this king. A lot of people do that in life. They make big heroes out of personalities. There's a lot of people who, man, they just become infatuated with with mere people. Maybe it's a celebrity. Maybe it's a boss. and, And you do all kinds of elaborate things that you try to do to coddle these people. Let me tell you what. If you're a Christian, there should only be one king in your life that you fuss over. And you know who that is? King Jesus. Amen? King Jesus. He's a good king. He has your best in mind. King Jesus is the one who died for you on the cross so that you could be forgiven. Don't spend your life fussing over human beings. Spend your life fussing over King Jesus. Display lavish acts of love upon him. Love him with all your worship. Love him with your resources, your service, your speech, your work, your lives, with your treatment of other people. Because King Jesus knows what's best. And King Jesus will be there for you, not only in this life, but for all of eternity. So let's close just with that thought. Let's love Jesus extravagantly. Amen? Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Lord, we thank you for this story. We thank you for how it shows that you are behind all these details in life. Lord, how I feel sorry for the person who lives their entire life never recognizing that you're there. Working and moving. Alive and active.
thank you, Lord, that you, we have that promise from you that those who love you and are called according to your purpose, you work all things out for their good. You've got a plan. And we trust you with it. And we don't want to live our lives, Lord, being men pleasers. We want to be God pleasers. We want to please you. Serving you elaborately. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just in these quiet moments. If you're here tonight and you've never met King Jesus, you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you have an opportunity tonight. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believeth on him would not perish but have everlasting life. He can wash away all of your sins, change you completely from the inside out, give you the promise of heaven when you die. He won't force himself into your life, though. He'll wait to be asked. Have you ever asked him? If you haven't, I want you to do it right now. Ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Say, Lord Jesus, I invite you into my life. Thank you for being that king that truly loves me. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins and rising again. Come into my life. Take ownership of my life. Lead me in the good plan that you have for me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's